Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So welcome back to Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. I was a lead pastor for 25 years and now am trying to shape the national dialogue about what the singular gospel of Jesus Christ should look like, sound like, feel like in today's modern context to struggling, longing people like you and me. We're at the cornerstone, foundational verse of the cornerstone passage of the uniquely powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to get this right. We, we just have to. It's powerful. It's shocking. It's provocative. It's life-changing. But we have to get it right in our heads and hearts. And I think that would cure a lot of the ails in the church today, which would then begin to cure a lot of the ails in our country today. The church here in the West is experiencing a mill exit, right? Gen Y exit and a Gen Z exit, largely because we, that's our, our message, not the gospel, but our way of presenting the gospel, because it comes across as exclusive, self-righteous, divisive, and largely irrelevant. I mean, don't shoot the messenger here, but it comes across as more riddled with microaggressors than an, an invitation should, and particularly an invitation to such positive things like significant security, belonging for the lost and hurting real people uh, into that living, singular, unique relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, or in Matthew's terms, the kingdom of heaven. Part of the problem is that so many around have been so deeply hurt by our religious institutions, by church. I have been, and so I get it. It's And it's humanly speaking, hear this, victims, it's humanly speaking impossible to work through that. I mean, really, your brain is designed to actually protect you from that again. But God can empower you to work through it. He can heal, right? You're here. So I'm not going to take that lightly. Maybe the healing's begun. I hope that's the case. So welcome. Bring your wounds, your doubts, your scars, your fears, your hesitancies. I mean, what else are you going to do? You can't get rid of them, right? You've tried. There are four main passages that inform us in our mission here at Gospel App. First and foremost, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, you've probably heard me speak about it, which talks about how I can access the present and future experience of the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus Christ for, for me and for other people, for Christians, through the agency, this is so important, the daily agency of the power of God through the Spirit and our inner being. So that's the first passage. The second one is Luke 4, 18 and 19, where Jesus quotes Isaiah and defines his own mission to the poor, the blind, the beat up, the outcast, the outies, so that they would know, this is important, that the door to God's favor is open for the likes of them. And then here at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, oh, and I should also mention the Old Testament book, The Song of Songs. That's the fourth. Same message. God pursues and embraces the least likely, the impure, the lost, the ugly, the sinners, the failures, the rejects, and those he pursues and embraces, he heals and rescues because he is a lover God. And I'm one of those rescues. So look, if you're tracking us, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're one of those uh, rescue projects too, or you will soon see that you're one. So here's my invite. If you're with us, welcome. No matter what you've done, how far you have fallen, the mess that you are in, whether caused by yourself and your own decisions or someone else's, the shame and loss that you have experienced or caused, 
any hesitancies caused by past wounds, welcome. And listen, give us feedback. We appreciate your voice here at Gospel Rant. Talk to me, bill at gospel-app.com, bill at gospel-app.com. You're probably, like me, looking for significance, security, and belonging in a lot of places. And you're getting some hits, right? But you want more. I want more. Maybe, it doesn't surprise me that this would be the last place you imagined looking, and yet here you are. Welcome, as you are. No judgment here, no shaming, no, this is what you should have been doing, or this, oh, now you should be working harder at this, it's all on your shoulders. No, none of us have earned a positive relationship with God, but it has been given to we Christians. And I invite all of us into it. Again, not by anything that you do or I do, but he does. Just come as you are, sit down, and listen. Push back, agree or disagree. And again, dialogue. That's kosher here. Bill at gospel-app.com. It wouldn't surprise me if today in this podcast you're grabbed by something that you've desperately needed maybe for a long time and, and certainly a part of your brain wants. And to be clear, a part of your brain doesn't. So, But welcome. All right, Beatitudes. Beatitudes comes from the Latin word for blessed. It's the cornerstone, the Beatitudes, the cornerstone section of the larger Sermon on the Mount, which is the cornerstone for Jesus's entire message of the gospel. It goes from technically, narratively, from 423 to 935. I've explained that in a previous podcast because it's bookended by almost the exact same verse. Matthew 4.23 is almost identical, almost identical to 9.35. Here's 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Popularly, we, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount covering between 5.1, where Jesus goes up the mountain, which is hardly a mountain, but more on that, to 8-1, where he comes down from the mountain, right? But Matthew's the author, after all, and he's the one who gathered and edited the material inspired by the Holy Spirit, and there's just no doubt he clearly wants us to see the larger section as a whole from 4-23 all the way to 9-35, and that's what we'll do. I want to give a quick overview of philosophies of interpretation. Uh, You can look at Pennington's uh, helpful commentary or Scott McKnight's uh, for good overviews, but but here we go. There's the Luther view. Somebody labeled it the impossible ideal, and that would be that the Sermon on the Mount sets the bar way too high for humans. We're, we are going to fail on our own, and so we run back, we fall back on grace, uh, our need to be rescued. So, the standard of the, the moral standard of the sermon is set so high that it casts us back upon grace. That's Luther's view. Calvin's view, similar, it's overlapping with Luther's. It's impossible for hum, humanity on our own, but with the power that comes from the Spirit, I mean, think Ephesians 3, we can begin to see real fruit, uh, meaning loving others and loving God more than we did before, um, but, but not perfect, not until heaven. Then there's the Anabaptist general view. The Sermon on the Mount is the new Torah. So uh, the law is there, and so we have to lean into doing each to the letter in order to uh, please God, to experience the favor and blessing of God in this kingdom. Uh, And if that's that's not directly stated, it's certainly implied. So, for instance, 
don't do oaths of any kind because Jesus said so and, and he would not be happy. All right, there's the Catholic view, which, by the way, is a multiple grouping of views over the 2,000 years. So for those who, it's, the idea is that it's a spiritual formation, ladder of holiness, and you start at the bottom rung and you want to climb up, and these are the steps, uh, particularly if you're an ordained clergy. Then there's the existential or philosophical view. The sermon doesn't prescribe laws, but speaks instead to the individual about his or her attitudes and internal dispositions. It's what we should be, not what we should do. There's the eschatological view, which says that the sermon refers almost strictly to a future kingdom and a future fulfillment. And I'm going to toss in uh, Frederick Bruner, one of my favorite commentators on the Sermon on the Mount, he calls the, the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount gospel concentrated. I love it. So Jesus's words go out and powerfully make disciples and followers of Jesus. So there's something more as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's something happening. Here's what he says. I think something actually happens to listening people when Jesus's Beatitudes are passed on to them. The Beatitudes are concentrated gospel. The person for whom the experience of impoverishment is a spiritual crisis, who groans in his or her spirit under the poverty, who is on the way down and who cries out to, to this person, Jesus announces, look up, I'm here taking your part and the kingdom I bring is especially for you. Um, by the way, this is a movie Academy Award nominee, Don't Look Up. This is just the opposite. This is Look Up. And in the movie, you Look Up and the Meteor Coming, this is your rescue is coming. I love it. As Cervase Pinkiers beautifully reflects, and I, I know I botched the name, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields, drawn along with determination. It drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with a sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of the new life. Close quote. I love that. So I think that we really must see that happening that day on the hillside. I have likened it to Genesis 1, where the Spirit is hovering over formlessness and void and speaks bara, which is only used of God's creative, intentional, powerful words. And then there was life and order. Not perfect, right? Because Satan was still around. But this is how God works his creative ministry then and still now. I mean, that's what we should expect. And he's working in the shredded lives of people who are anxious, who are afraid, who are doubtful, cynical. Uh, their lives and brains are in a wreck, in chaos. These are the ones that God speaks to, like the people on the hillside. We miss so much, I think, when when we see the Sermon on the Mount as a series of interesting, rational TED Talks that promote better life principles. Don't get me wrong, it is that, but it's so much more. The, they're more than conference PowerPoint presentations where people learn a lot, but no one is radically transformed or convicted or changed, but they can tell you a, a list of the principles, right? 
all beginning with an alliteration, a letter P or S or L, things we should be doing, should be living by, but we keep failing and feeling even more shame, and there's that nasty cycle. Or we think that we might keep be keeping them, and so we feel pride and, and uh, looking down and critical towards others, right? Um, so that's very wearying. I'm tired of that. It's not just me, right? Here's Dallas Willard. Quote, we must recognize, first of all, that the aim of the popular teacher in Jesus's time was not to impart information, but to make a significant change in the lives of the hearers. Of course, that may require an information transfer, but it is a peculiarly modern notion that the aim of teaching is to bring people to know things that may have no effect at all on their lives. In our day, learners usually think of themselves as containers of some sort with a purely passive space to be filled by the information the teacher possesses and wishes to transfer. The from jug to mug model. The teacher is to fill in empty parts of the receptacle with truth that may or may not later make some difference to the life of the one who has it. The teacher must get the information into them. We then test the patients to see if they got it by checking whether they can reproduce it in language rather than watching how they live. The secret of the great teacher is to speak words, to foster experiences that impact the active flow of the hearer's life, close quote. So young adults, Gen Y and Gen Z, in, in my conversations, are tired and angry at our old ways. They recognize that something is wrong. Something's wrong in our world. Something in, is wrong inside of their own hearts and identities and relationships and sexualities. And they want to change. They want to rescue. There's no more anxious or lonely generation on record. They want more than just another talking head lecture. So instead of coming to our gatherings and, and getting shamed, right, their words, falling short of expectations, they've just stopped coming. I can only imagine that the people on the hillside with Jesus, right? Imagine that, Jesus face-to-face, -face, seeing his eyes, his expressions, hearing his laughter. And many, maybe most of them, were unexpectedly powerfully moved, changed. Uh, so the, the object of a miracle. They went from feeling isolated and dishonored, being treated unfairly in their lives, sick to death, ashamed of falling short of all expectations, anxious or avoidant when they thought about God or their version of God or God's. Many were suffering intolerably from a variety of physical and spiritual and emotional brokenness and diseases. And then they come face to face with him, Jesus. There in the presence of God himself. There's an Old Testament phrase. I've talked about it before, lipne Elohim, which means basically in front of his face. It's a personal audience with God where you can see his expression. Uh, so there in the presence, the lipne Elohim, they felt, and maybe for the first time in a long while, like persons of honor again. If you ask them, why'd you come? You know, I, I don't think they were looking for that. It would have been, it'd be a great conversation to hear it and speculative, I think, really interesting. And then the next question is, so what happened? What'd you get? I don't think that many of them would have left saying, I'm going to try harder to be perfect now, right? But that's where we're usually left when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. I tell pastors often, 
when they do ask me how their messages could be more effective and powerful, that we should expect that when hurting people, right? I mean, real people, we're all hurting. When they come to our churches, our assemblies, large or small, their issues must be acknowledged. Not judged, but empathetically acknowledged. So something like this. If you're here and are feeling that you're at the end of your rope, you're depressed, nothing's working, you're feeling anxious, afraid, beat up, lonely, rejected, overlooked, welcome. You're not alone here. I want you to see in the gaze of Jesus, um, who does see you and still draws near you. He feels honor towards you. And no matter who you are, what your story is, he even touches hurting people, unclean people, and they get hope. And that's our hope for all of us today, that we're all touched by him. So welcome. In the end, we, we just might ask you, so are you more loved because you saw him today or that he saw you? Close quote. Real people, sinners, all, that's all we are, should feel welcomed as we are. We should feel honored, touched, and changed. It doesn't by the way, give us, uh, we're still responsible for our choices and our sins. All that's true. But if you were to ask anyone who came and heard you speak, did you feel the powerful healing presence of Jesus? They should have an answer. If you ask them, were you touched? Were you changed? And, you know, don't expect it to make sense to them. I know these are fighting words, by the way, to our post-enlightenment boomers like me. It's all about truth for us. And truth is good. It's just truth and power should go together when we talk about the gospel. So often we think that our role is to convince people of truth. If we did our convincing job well enough, of course people would choose to buy in. That's how we've been taught. But Satan knows the truth pretty well, actually very well, and it does nothing for him at all. It's not just about extending truth. Our job, preachers, teachers, leaders, is to expect that God loves our people far more than we do. And his passion is to heal, to rescue, to pursue and change. Again, Luke, Luke 4. Far more than we want to, or definitely far more than we have the capacity to, to, to make that change. Do we preachers and teachers believe that? We should see, hope for and expect, we should see people changed every week, a little or a lot. I expect that the people on the hillside were forever changed, not perfectly, but noticeably. Um, here's Willard again. And on your list of the blessed, you are really walking in the good news of the kingdom if you can go with confidence to any of the hopeless people around you and effortlessly convey assurance that they can now enter a blessed life with God. Who would be on your list of hopeless blessables as found in today's world? Certainly all of those on Jesus' list, for though they are merely illustrative, they are also timeless. But can we, following his lead as a teacher, concretize the gospel even more for those around us? Who would you regard as the most unfortunate people around you? Close quote. And we're going to dig in more, but I find myself buying into kind of a combination, an overlap between Luther, Calvin, and Bruner lines of thought and throw in the apocalyptic version. And here's how I would say it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount sets the bar way higher than I can accomplish. And I'll admit it. I should, but I won't. I don't. 
And remember that in the seven attributes of Jesus and the kingdom that we laid out in, in previous podcasts, no one holds the law to a higher extreme than Jesus does. He, he never waves his hand and says, it's okay, don't worry about it. As God, he was a screaming perfectionist, right, humanly speaking. Everyone on that hillside had committed unforgivable crimes against God, the creation, other humans, except Jesus. And he is not going to wave his hands and say, that's all right, it was your father's fault, or you can blame your context or what was done to you. No, he will 100% honor the law, but, or and, he will 100% rescue the failed people from its righteous condemnation. That's the cross, right? He also has come to do more than just shine light on the Torah. He has done that, right? He has come to rescue and embrace and transform serial Torah failures like me. But for Calvin, we get the Spirit poured out inside our inner being, and the Spirit empowers us, impassions us, motivates us to want to love God and love our neighbor more, more than we did before. Now, but I will also say that my efforts to love and, and be loved are, are totally unsatisfactory still and will only be perfected in the future. So when Jesus speaks, bara, and, and, and that, that word changes me, the Spirit, along with the word, changes me, not perfectly, I begin to feel more honored, I feel more hopeful, I feel less shame, I feel more grateful, I feel like I can make a difference more. I want to love more. I'm able to receive love more. I want to follow him more. And the credit goes to the Holy Spirit. And then there's the apocalyptic, the already not yet. Is There's not a perfect human being on the planet right now. That's for heaven. All right. Enough preaching. Let's get into the Beatitudes, the blessed bees. It's a, it's a poetic section, lots of dialogue, and people debate how to break them up. We know that Makarios is mentioned nine times, blessed be, or happy, or fortunate, or flourishing. We'll get into that in depth. Uh, there's the Hans Dieter Betz and Frederick Bruner who say that the, it, the first beatitude, 5 verse 3, is separated from the other eight, and it's the key, it's the capstone, and the rest of the sermon, by the way, is the outworking of that singular verse, 5-3. Mark Allen Powell uh, heads the list of those who divide the Beatitudes in half, basically. They two, see two sections of four plus a, a final verse. And they see the first section of four reversing uh, things for the unfortunate, the second group of four promising eschatological reward for the virtuous. And then there's a closing comment, chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. Or, this is creative, you can see a parallel between two tablets of the Decalogue. The first four look vertical, and the second horizontal related to the others. And then there's the three sections of three, Scott McKnight, Pennington, and others. Uh, McKnight sees three main moral themes of the Beatitudes laid out. The first section of three is humility, the second is justice, and the third is peace. Uh, Pennington adds that he sees a pattern of threes in Matthew, multiples of threes. I like that. And I find myself leaning towards the three by three, but I also agree that the first blessed is critical, and it, it's an overview of the, of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as the Beatitudes are the cornerstone of the entire Sermon on the Mount, and so the passion of Jesus for his kingdom, the first blessed be is the anchor of the Beatitudes, right? Sorry for the mixed metaphor. If you're a church or organization, 
is looking for a simple vision statement, take Matthew 5, 3. All right, you can do Luke 4, 18 and 19, but go with Matthew 5, 3 if you want something bumper sticker. That keeps us focused on the one thing that Jesus's heart is returning to. In his eyes, his mission, his passion, the least likely, the most broken, the, the most sorrowful, the most mistreated here, find themselves in God's loving embrace as people of stunning honor. It's this turnaround. And we want our church to reflect that and to communicate that over and over. One hurting person, one hurting family at a time. Shame to honor. Repeat. Shame to honor. Repeat. Jesus is here for the poor in spirit. That's what Matthew 5, 3 is basically saying. Those of us who not only need help, we need a rescue. We can't do it on our own. We, we won't. We have a record to prove it. That's who he gathered. That is who he is addressing in his words. And that includes everybody, actually. I mean, if you look at it, everybody's uh, hurting. So it's the multitude, it's the disciples, and it's such good news for all of us. Um, but having said that, this is not the image, the caricature of the church from the people outside of our church or the people who have left our church being hurt. What they've picked up is is that they're not good enough. They're not faithful enough. They're not worthy of heaven. And the church is the gathering of those people who are good enough. Right? So before you come to our church, get your act together. This is what I'm not saying we're saying it. I'm saying this is what they're hearing. Get your act together like us and we'll, we'll like you and treat you well then. But the Sermon on the Mount will say that the outsiders, the unchurched, are wildly welcome in the kingdom of God as they are. They can't repair the damage in them or from them. They won't. They need to be rescued. And this is what Jesus came to do. Churches are the gathered rescue, still broken, still messed up. And look, that would explain why churches are so messy, doesn't it? I mean, I think so. Just saying, but that's another talk for another time. Uh, one note up front. The question seems to be asked a lot, who is Jesus speaking to? And some suggest he was speaking to his disciples, and that's implied in the first part. But at the end, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So he's speaking to everybody. It's absurd to think that he wasn't speaking to the crowd. He had to have been speaking up for them to hear them. By the way, and the disciples, the disciples were actually part of the crowd, or as one commentator says, the crowd were actually part of the disciples in Jesus's point of view. So, and again, the, the disciples were poor in spirit too, uh, as we are before Jesus finds us and rescues us. And so it's not just the disciples and the crowd, it's us today, every place nook and cranny where people hear these words. We're all listening. Well, let's remember how Matthew describes the first audience. And again, so we're going to say that includes the disciples and, and the people on the hillside and you and me right now. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and and the region across the Jordan followed him. So a reminder, far too often, we have imagined, we do imagine that this was a Jewish crowd. I mean, something like one would see at a temple in Jerusalem or the synagogues, a good, good Jews who just want to get it right. But among the people, in verse 23, that's a generic word, laos. So that means it could be Gentiles, it could be Jews, it could be a mixture, just regular people, and all that's determined by the context, right? So it's Jewish, non-Jewish, or mixed, depends upon the context, and so commentators debate. Some still assume that it refers to only Jews, so go with France or Nolan. Gundry, on the other hand, links this with 121 and says that it speaks to the, quote, churchly people of Jesus whom he will save from their sins, irrespective of tribe, close quote. And I like Gundry. I think he's right. There's little in context to suggest that this was a totally Jewish or even a majority Jewish crowd. Certainly, it speaks to anyone and everyone today. Jesus's mission has always been global. He didn't have a Greek or Roman bone in his body, and yet he embraces all tribes as a Jew. So I'm running with the notion that this was a highly mixed crowd. Likely there were many, no doubt religiously righteous Jews there, who delighted in Torah, who pursued wisdom and understanding, who kept the Sabbath and so forth. You know, what we would call the good Jews, uh, per Psalm 1, the righteous who does not walk in the way of sinners and who are proclaimed blessed be. Ashray in the Hebrew, the Jewish equivalent of the Greek word that Jesus is using, blessed be, and more on that. There were likely many others. Those righteous Jews would have most likely been surrounded, engulfed uh, by the rest of humanity, the, the rest of soiled, impure world. Jesus's fame brought people from all over Galilee, we're told. And remember, the Galilean Jews were considered impure by the Judean Jewish religious bureaucracy. They were considered less righteous, less God-pleasing, maybe on whom God was disciplining, on whom God would certainly not proclaim blessed be, not per, per Psalm 1. They had a reputation of being revolutionaries, uh, independent, angry, passive-aggressive, because every family there would have known someone who died in the uprising a generation ago. Many of these Jews, like their Judean brothers, might separate from the non-Jews in their community, but probably for different reasons. There were also Jews, particularly on the strip of the northern bank of the Sea of Galilee, who, whose livelihood, whose lives were dependent upon the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the Roman superhighway that brought commerce, armies, people, teachers from other nations, tribes, religions, tongues, etc. And think... Matthew, the tax collector, right? They would have become dependent upon getting along with and doing business with the world. And likely to one degree or another, they would have been seen as traitors or or sellouts by the Orthodox Jews uh, around Jerusalem. Here's another example, Galilean fishermen. They fished, but a lot of their fish were sold to, and so they did business regularly with unclean Gentile institutions, unbelievers. So, To some degree, they were people who had lost face in Judaism, and they had to deal with that. So to some degree, they would have felt like people without a people, uh, shamed people in a a community of honor shame. 
and maybe you can relate to that feeling. I would imagine that lots who hear this podcast uh, feel like they've abandoned the religion of their families or have walked away and you have to make up excuses or defend yourself, or maybe you have to make it clear that you don't want to have that conversation at Thanksgiving anymore, right? Uh, you don't want to be told that you're impure or backslider or reminded that you should be praying or they're compromised Christian somehow. I mean, I get it. And listen, to you, I'm saying welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. This is sweet, sweet music for you. All right. But there was also Gentile international population on the hillside from Decapolis, Bethsaida, for instance, uh, northeast, southeast of the lake, northwest of the lake. There is no legit reason exegetically to assume that these were Jews only. Speaking of the Jews from the Decapolis who did come, they would have known that they would not be considered righteous Jews by many of their Jewish brothers who might also be on that hillside too. Maybe they were afraid that God had become disappointed in them as they were. Maybe he was angry. Maybe they were afraid of being subject to curses, or maybe they were experiencing those curses, right? We get it. Maybe they were done with the religious thing, the denomination thing. Maybe they were anxious but uh, or in avoidance mode with regard to God or the divine. They would struggle as they walked down the street past the synagogue or on feast days or Sabbath. Maybe their families had rejected them. They may wonder if Jesus being a Jewish rabbi was going to shame them more, tell them they need to work harder. And maybe they were part of the unclean categories listed in Judaism. The divorced, the sick, the shepherd, the tanners, the lepers, the ones who married out of their tribe, those who had messed up and shamed the family and tribe, the raped, the sick, the demon-possessed, the prostitutes. There's so many ways to fall short in uh, religious circles or to be made to fall short in religious circles. They didn't need a clarification on the Torah. Uh, They don't need a new way to be told you're a failure to your family and people, but they came anyway. Remarkable. And then there's the Gentiles, uh, the unbelievers, the uncircumcised, people from all over who worshiped other gods, or maybe they uh, just were superstitious. And Gundry gets it right, undoubtedly. The breadth of the draw to see Jesus in person serves Matthew's portrayal of Jesus as an exemplary evangelist to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles came too. Well, drawn by what? They needed to be healed. They needed pain removed. Listen, it cost them to go and hear a Jewish rabbi. Great personal risk of reputation. So maybe they came out of necessity, a last-ditch effort. Maybe they were cynical. Maybe they were desperate. I don't see them coming like we might lay out there to discuss the finer points of Judaism, wondering if they might convert. They wouldn't be welcome to the temple, most likely anyway. Think the Samaritan woman or the prostitute or Matthew. They would feel a loss of face in a very strong honor-shame culture. They wouldn't feel happy necessarily or at peace in either community. And nowhere does Jesus say they need to get circumcised in order to be blessed be, or to convert, or to go to the temple. He calls them blessed be at the very beginning of the very beginning of the Beatitudes, as they are. They came from all over Syria. 
Syria was a massive Roman region that spread from the Mediterranean, Tyre and Sidon, to Damascus, and further on to the Euphrates River. Gundry wonders if Matthew is including Syria in anticipation of Jesus' ministry to a Gentile woman who lived in the Phoenician part of Syria, chapter 15, verse 21 to 28, and for the purpose of giving Jesus' ministry among Galilean Jews overtones of later evangelization of Gentiles. Gundry concludes that the disciples about to be taught at the beginning must be none other than the crowd that had been taught at the close. So he's making the disciples and the crowd equivalent on the Sermon on the Mount. I I like that. Uh, They became disciples. It it seems in chapter 8, the crowds followed him. Discipleship words, right? All right. So what were they looking for? Matthew tells us that so many were broken, diseased, no cure, no respite, only a a life of pain and isolation and shame and fear, right? Verse 24 of chapter 4, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. The Greek word for disease is nosos, which speaks about any physical disease or illness, And any of them would have been viewed in the Mediterranean society, no matter who you were and where you came from, as socially devaluing, as a shame. And again, this is a very strong honor-shame culture. Sickness is a condition of bodily weakness, according to BDAG. Debility, weakness, sickness, um, often linked together with disease. And, And by the way, often including demon possession. John Nolan says this, a thread runs from the uses of whole and every, in verse 23, the whole of Galilee, every disease, every sickness, through the uses of whole and all, in verse 24, all those sick, the whole of Syria, and on in verse 25, to the list of all the parts of Jewish Palestine. Matthew is concerned to create an image of comprehensiveness, clearly in the interest of asserting the scale of the significance of Jesus and his passion to change the world the nations. From a historical perspective, this involves some exaggeration, narrative storytelling exaggeration. For the sick and diseased Jews and non-Jews, if this was you, you didn't need to wonder how God felt towards you or fate or fortune. You knew you were cursed. You knew that you had fallen short and God was either disciplining you or smiting you. God had to be angry and you were subject to his negative evaluation and judgment. There's no record of these people trying to appease his wrath. Some did in John's baptism by repenting, right, uh, weeks before. But if you did that and you're still ill, you still have diseases, something's wrong. And, you know, you had serious troubles. I mean, if God didn't accept your repentance and baptism, well, you're screwed, right? Um, no, I, I think that the general feel, if you, if you want to imagine the people on the hillside, they were desperate. That's that's the, my summary. They wanted to get relief from pain. They didn't want to get new religion. They wanted the relief from pain. And this was secular or not. They just wanted relief. They wanted relief from shame, from the loss of face, from the isolation and loneliness, the fear of death and dying, uh, and dying and death alone. And they were willing to go anywhere and try anything, even trying to get an audience with a Jewish rabbi. They were desperate and needed a rescue. Jesus, they heard, had the power to heal. 
So, okay, let's go. I don't care if he's a good Jew or a bad Jew of Jerusalem or Galilee. I don't care. I want relief. I am willing to risk failure of being mocked, of associating with other Audis, if I have a chance of some healing. And if this doesn't work, I don't know what to do next. It was Pertilike, a host of the miserable, the guilt-burdened, the lonely, the incurably ill, the careworn, the people who are hag-ridden by anxiety. They gaze at Jesus with inscrutable eyes that can be fathomed only by the Savior himself. In some mysterious way, Jesus attracts the miserable. I love that. He draws the sinners and sufferers from their hiding places like a magnet. Undoubtedly, the reason for this is that men sense in this figure something they do not see in any other man. The powers of guilt and suffering cannot touch him. That mysteriously, these powers retreat as he comes by. So they sought to get near to him. Close quote. Uh, here's Tidlicky again. Quote, these people gathered around Jesus know, or at least they think they know, what is coming when Jesus opens his mouth. God's declaration of war against man, denunciation of sin, painful scrutinizing exposure of those innermost thoughts with which God is not pleased. Then Jesus opened his mouth and something completely unexpected happened. Something that drove these people to an astonishment bordering upon terror. Something that held them spellbound long after he ceased speaking and would not let them rest. Jesus said to the people gathered around him, people who were harried by suffering, misery, and guilt, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. The Sermon on the Mount closes with the remark that the crowds were astonished and frightened, even though it was a sermon on grace. But this is what always happens when God unveils his great goodness. It is so immense, so far beyond and contrary to all human dimensions and conceptions that at first one simply cannot understand it. And we stand there in utter helpless bewilderment. Close quote. Man, that's so good. Jesus does something shocking, intimate, unlikely, moving for people like these. He draws near right? He does not avoid. He comes close in contrast to how they're treated by others. In his eyes, they see compassion. You know, likely the splagnitsomai, the compassion that we will hear of later when Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. Uh, they don't see elitism or criticism or racism or judgments. Um, not better than thou, not looking down, not saying, well, you should know better, right? Uh, he rolls up his sleeves and touches them, speaks to them, blesses them, heals them. And I'm sure he smiles at them and maybe laughs over them. No questions asked, no strings attached, no closing shots, no demands, um, no manipulation, just a gracious rescue. In a word, he honors them like they haven't been honored by another person for a long, long time. And he's God. No wonder they would listen to him, follow him, tell others about him. And also, those touched by Jesus will turn outward a little. This is so important. He doesn't leave them as they are. They are changed. Desperate people, hurting people, naturally turn inward, focused on their own needs and desires, and no judgment. That's human, me too. But when Jesus' spirit is poured out and poured into their inner being, selfish people become merciful people, a little or a lot. I mean, check out Matthew 5, 7. Their world has changed. The world has changed, a little or a lot. Here's Dallas Willard, quote, We have already indicated the key to understanding the Beatitudes. They serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message 
the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us. They do this simply by taking those who, from the human point of view, are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. This fact of God's care and provision proves to all that no human condition excludes blessedness, that God may come to any person with his care of deliverance. God does sometimes help those who cannot, or perhaps just do not, help themselves. So much for another well-known generalization. The religious system of his day left the multitudes out, but Jesus welcomed them all into his kingdom. Anyone could come as well as any other. They still can. That is the gospel of the Beatitudes, close quote. So powerful. All right, we're going to pick it up here in the next podcast. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says, the words he uses are outlandish and wonderful then and still now, today. I think you will see why I say that we've been largely lazy and inconsistent in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the blessed bees, and maybe even this first blessed bee, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. You might hear something very new, very different. It, It may just give you some hope. The importance of all of this, is this just exegetical nitpicking? No, 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 no. The Sermon on the Mount and its capstone, the Beatitudes, is the gospel concentrated, meaning by nature it changes lives, if we get it right, um, right? What you believe Jesus said and meant determines what you think of the entire gospel right now. If your spiritual walk is languishing, if you can relate to the crowd that desperately came to hear Jesus the not the spiritually successful, whatever that means, if you feel that God might be or is disappointed in you, or worse, if you feel like you've lost your faith or been an underachiever or failure, um, and that bad things are in your life because God's raining his disappointment down on you or he has pulled back, well, I can say that you've misunderstood the gospel. Don't feel defensive. Join the crowd. I mean, effectively... I'm there every day to one degree or another. I'm shame prone. I wake up there. I get a little of what the crowd was feeling. I do. And there are days where I won't even come to the mount to hear Jesus because I'm subconsciously too ashamed to see in his eyes as they gaze at me, as they measure me, because I mess up regularly. And I don't want to see his eyes so often. So spiritually speaking, I tend to look away and down. That's shame, right? I'm a mess. So no judgment for me. If you want to feel God's favor, though, if you want to feel his embrace, to have your strangling shame lifted a little or a lot, to have that critical inner voice shut down even momentarily, welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Stay with it. Muscle through. You will be so encouraged, so surprised, honored. You'll feel loved, less ashamed, less isolated. You might even laugh more, a little or a lot. And if if you're feeling... Like, you got to laugh. Don't hold back. We have encapsulated all of this in our online gospel experience, The Dance, the-dance.org. Look, if you can do it, do it. It would be appropriate to call it Gospel in a Box or Sermon on the Mountain in a Box. It only takes two hours. It's only 29 bucks, and that's satisfaction guaranteed. So if if nothing happens, we'll give you your money back. You have 30 days to do it as many times as you want. 
If it was a good experience, do it again and again and again. Listen, if you want to re-enter the celestial dance experientially, right? You can't fall away from it. But if you want to re-experience it, go for it. You want to hear the heavenly music again. See Jesus' smile gazing at you again, as you are. Just come. It's shame-free, like I said, satisfaction guarantee. Also, please like, follow, comment on, and share this podcast. We want to get the word out. It's time for something bold and new and other-oriented on planet Earth. Uh, talk to me, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Follow Instagram, gospel app, one word, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com.